I want to start today's message by talking about some myths, and I thought I would question you as uh, attendees of today's service, and uh, if we can go to that first slide. The first myth is about water, and I want to ask you guys, how many glasses of water are you supposed to drink every single day? Does anybody know? Six to eight? All right. Oh, we've got a range here. That was a very professional answer. Any other answers? Sorry? Three is enough. Three is enough. All right. Ah, we have... Ah, this group, this group is too smart. This, this group is too uh, knowledgeable. So generally, we're told, and I even put a picture up there to trick everybody. Generally, we're told that you're supposed to drink eight cups of water every single day to hydrate yourself properly. And it's actually a myth. And the way that you're supposed to base your needs of hydration is based off of the size of your body. Obviously, um, somebody who is quite tall or large um, who may need eight cups of water, who may need even more, is going to have different water needs than a midget, right? Someone who, or, or Micah, for example. If Micah drank eight cups of water every single day, we wouldn't have enough nappies. <laughs> and so, um, obviously, your H2O needs are based off of your body, the size of your body. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Okay, does anybody know what sushi means? When you think of sushi, what do you usually think of? Okay, a little hand roll thing. <laughs> Direct translation, right? <laughs> Anything else? What does sushi remind you of? Yeah, raw fish. And usually when you go to the sushi bar or whatever, this is something that you would see, and a lot of it has to do with seafood or fish. Uh, actually, the direct translation for sushi is not fish, but it's actually sour rice. So the direct translation of sushi is sour rice. And the reason why that is, is because usually you have your rice, and then you pour vinegar over it, and then you mix the white rice with the vinegar, and that's what makes it sticky. So when you roll the sushi, it stays in place. So if anybody ever tells you that sushi is a raw fish, you can correct them now. So we'll go to the next slide. Okay, does anybody know what percentage of your brain do you use in your cognitive functions? Ah, too smart. All right. So usually we're told that we use how much, what percentage of our brain? Anybody? 5%, maybe 10%. And there, you know, there have been movies that's even quoted over and over and over again. People are saying, oh, you know, you want to use a small percentage of your brain and imagine what could be accomplished if you used 100% of your brain. And I think recently Hollywood has kind of capitalized on that idea as well. And so, yeah, what, what, um, basically what neurologists are saying is that when you even perform simple tasks, it, there are different areas of your brain that fire off at the same time. And so, one, it's really difficult to quantify what percentage of your brain you use. And there are other tasks that you use um, a huge percentage of your brain because it's targeting different areas of your mind. And so that idea of you using 10% of your brain is a myth. Um, and then finally, we'll go to one last picture. Hiccups. Now, what have you been told cures hiccups? Scaring somebody? Yes. Any others? Okay, standing on your head. 
holding your breath. All right. Now, I have a one-year-old son who gets the hiccups every now and then, and I can't get him to drink water or stand him on his head, but there's one thing that I can do, and that's scare him, and it doesn't work. So just letting you know, if you ever have a baby, it's not going to cure his hiccups. So yeah, it's a myth. Like, scaring somebody actually does not cure hiccups. Now, there are many times where we're raised with these ideas and these concepts of what is truth. Now, if you can turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 11, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 11. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. Now, to give you some background, Israel is in a time in its history where, it's, where they have entered into Canaan, they have settled down, they've been there for hundreds of years, and what's taken place is that God has promised that, they, that he would bring them into the promised land, Canaan, and they're supposed to then influence the surrounding nations about the truth and about who God is. And rather than being an influencer, they are influenced by the different na- nations. And what takes place is their true worship becomes diluted and their truth becomes um, falsehood. And they're given the sacrificial system and they pervert the sacrificial system and this is God's response to Israel, and they've turned the truth into a myth. Now in verse 11, it says, Of what importance to me are your many sacrifices, says the Lord? I am stuffed with burnt sacrifices and rams and the fat from steers, the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats I do not want. And so God initially had given Israel the sacrificial system, and he was supposed to teach them about truth. And they were supposed to give those around them and their children a first-hand experience of God. But the challenge of being a second-generation Christian, or the challenge of getting truth second-hand, is that sometimes it gets diluted and we are given the wrong information. And so here, Israel is given the sanctuary service to promote truth, and instead they give um, myths. And here's how God continues on in his rebuke of Israel. He says, When you enter my presence, verse 12, do you actually think I want this? Animals trampling on my courtyards? Do not bring any more meaningless offerings. I consider your incense detestable. You you observe new moon festivals, Sabbaths, and convocations, but I cannot tolerate sin-stained celebrations. And so God looks at the very thing that he once gave to Israel, and he says, I do not want these things. We keep reading. Uh, verse 18, or excuse me, verse uh, 17. Um, he says, Wash, cleanse yourselves, remove your sinful deeds from my sight, stop sinning, learn to do what is right, promote justice, give the oppressed reason to celebrate, take up the cause of the orphan, defend the rights of the widow. Come, let us... Reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins have stained you like the color red, you can become like white snow. Though they are easy to see as the color scarlet, you can become like white wool. And so here God tells Israel what the true purpose of his worship was supposed to promote. And instead, they use the sacrifices in a different way. What I want to do for a moment is address what idolatry looked like in the time of Israel And I wonder if there's a modern-day application, if we too, as Christians, 
um, are prone to taking the truth of God and mixing it with things that are not truthful. So, if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 135, verses 15, and we're going to read verses 15 to 18. Psalm chapter 135, verses 15 to 18. Psalm is kind of in the middle of the Bible, and we're picking up here in verse 13. Notice what the psalmist says about idolatry. O Lord, your name endures. Your reputation, O Lord, lasts. For the Lord vindicates his people and has had compassion on his servants. The nation's idols are made of silver and gold. They are man-made. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, and ears but cannot hear. Indeed, they cannot breathe. Those who make them will end up like them, and as will everyone who trusts in them. Okay, I need to back up a little bit. So, God has a specific remark about the sacrificial system. And in the previous text, in verse 13, God mentions, you've taken the sanctuary service and you've mixed it with sin. And what happened is, uh, as I was mentioning before, Israel was supposed to be an influencer of the pagan nations and of the uh, nations that worshipped idols. But instead, they began to be influenced by the idols. And what happened is, idolatry began to creep into the sanctuary service, and God is now remarking, rather than you becoming worshippers of myself, you have become idol worshippers. And here's what I want to highlight in Psalms one, uh, Psalm 135, verses 13 to 18. God has this remark about what idolatry looks like in the days of Canaan. And he says, those who create idols... The creation of the idol is basically a reflection of themselves. So if a man comes and says, this is my creation, it's actually something that comes from his own heart. Now, not only that, there's a second element of idolatry. If you go to Romans chapter 1, and read verses 23 and 24. Romans chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, it says, those who basically um, practice idolatry, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the desires of their hearts, to impurity, to, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So basically... What an idolater does is they form an image, they have an idea of what God is supposed to be like, and they manipulate their idea of God into an image. And that image begins to be something where they get to practice the desires of their own hearts. And God sees idolatry and he says, I see that you actually just want to do what you want to do, so go ahead. And the Bible says that God gives these individuals up to uh, the lusts of their heart. And so... When in the Ten Commandments where God says, don't have any uh, idols, don't worship any graven images, God is basically saying, don't edit the idea of me. Because as soon as you edit the idea of me, you lose truth. You lose truth. Now here's how pagan idolatry played out um, throughout Israel history. Now, these are two famous um, uh, Semitic... um, idols in the time of Israel's history. 
This is Baal, the one on the left, and this is Asherah, his consort, the one on the right. And these two idols were often seen together, and these places of worship were often built up in higher places, like on the top of hills, and they would clear out the hills, and they would put together these two um, these two idols. Now, Baal is actually the rain god, and so whenever uh, the pagan nations of Canaan wanted to bring down rain for their uh, for their harvests and for their food, they would call out to Baal. Now, they did this in a very specific way. Now, Baal was uh, considered a a bit of a perverted, erotic god, if you will. And basically, what they thought is, we have the land that is fertile, and we need to fertilize this land. And the way that you fertilize the land is through rain, right? And so they kind of depicted Baal and Asherah as like a husband and wife type of a thing. And the way that you fertilize um, someone and get a baby is through uh, the act of intimacy. And so what they would do to call out to Baal is they would think, well, we've got to get uh, Baal to fertilize the ground, to give his rain, if you will. And so what we're going to do is we're going to gather the priests and the priestesses of the Baal worshippers, and we're gonna, we have to try and turn on Baal, for example. And so they would come together in these high places of open air, and they would practice these not-so-good rituals, if you will. And they were trying to get Baal to reign on the ground. And that was the center of this worship. So you can imagine, as you're reading through the Old Testament, and God is saying, stop worshiping Baal. He's trying to stop Israelites from this perversion that's going on. And so what ends up happening is that uh, the priests and priestesses of Baal, they would go to their um, their people and they would say, listen, we need to get Baal to rain down on earth. So you guys need to do the same thing. So worship consisted of large numbers of people coming together and basically having these orgies. And so you look at something like this and you kind of wonder, well, who invented that? And long time ago, somebody decided, you know what? There's a desire that I have in my heart. And there's something that I want to create so that I can just experience what makes me feel good. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to create the worship of Baal. And it becomes an expression of the very lust of the human heart. And what happens is, Israel, the weakest nation of God's people, is in the middle of Canaanite country. And all around them, this type of worship is going on. And so they look at it, and rather than influencing that type of worship, they become influenced. And you see these Israelites chasing after idolatry. And you might even, you know, there are many times where I ask myself, why do God's people chase after idolatry? And you read a little bit about the history and you realize these people thought, oh, I want some of that too. And I can't get that in my religion. So I'm going to chase after that. There's a second element of idolatry that um, makes idolatry questionable in the eyes of God. There's this uh, issue of manipulation. See, the worship of Baal consisted of if you give A, Baal will give B. And there's a transactional relationship that takes place. I will give you, Baal, what you want, and you, Baal, have to give me what I want. And so they needed rain, they needed food, they needed sustenance, and as a way of giving Baal what, uh, getting from Baal what 
they needed, they would give Baal what he wanted. And rather than having this relationship with Baal, it became this, I have to appease Baal because the general uh, mode of Baal is not to give rain and he needs to be appeased. And it, whenever there's a drought, it's almost if Baal is saying, I don't want to give you what you need. So you have to do something that will appease me and then I'll give you rain. Now, when I look at that, I think to myself, that's kind of a messed up picture of what it's like to know God or a God. And here's the Israelites' worship of the sanctuary where they too needed to give sacrifices. And the idea of giving to God was almost so similar to the Canaanite pagan worship of Baal in this respect. Israel had a lamb that they were supposed to have in front of them. And they would sacrifice this lamb and give it to God to become right with God. But there's one slight variation of this sacrificial system that completely changed what worship was supposed to be like. It's in this way. For the most part, Israel had to take this, uh, what they call a clean animal. It's either a goat or a lamb. And that lamb was a representation of Jesus himself. And so if you think of texts like John chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was a representation of that very Lamb. Rather than Israel giving something to God to appease God, it was God giving something to Israel to remind them of His love for them. And so, there's this slight variation of rather than Israel having to change God's mind, it was God trying to change Israel's mind. And so when God looks at the perversion of what takes place in the sanctuary service, he gets upset because Israel begins to take their sanctuary service and they start trying to appease God with their sacrifices. If you go to Micah chapter 6, going back to the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6, and we're basically going to Um, run through verses 1 to 8. This chapter is written in a legal format. And what takes place is we're given this picture of a courtroom scene where God is the judge, he calls witnesses, and then he gives and he sends his accusation. So he calls nature to be witness. He says in verse 1, Listen to what the Lord says. Get up, defend yourself before the mountains. Present your case before the hills. Hear the Lord's accusation, you mountains, you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He has a dispute with Israel. And notice, here is his accusation. Verse 4, In fact, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I delivered you from the place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to lead you. And so God tells Israel, look at how I freed you from Israel. And so he says, first, I want you to behold my goodness towards you. I freed you from slavery. If you look at verse 5, My people recall how King Balak of Moab planned to harm you, how Balaam of son of Beor responded to him. And so he said, he says, Remember how Balaam tried to go and curse you and remember how I protected you. So there's a story of that prophet Balaam who goes to see the king of Moab and he's supposed to curse all of Israel. And as he opens his mouth 
and he's about to curse Israel, blessing comes out and promise comes out. And God says, I protected you. There's a third example that's given. Recall, verse, middle of verse 5, recall how you journeyed from Shittim to Gilgal so you might acknowledge that the Lord has treated you fairly. Now, those two towns, they're a geographical location. It was kind of like the gate to the promised land. As soon as Israel passed those two areas, it was kind of like an acknowledgement. God fulfilled his promise. We are now in the land of Canaan. And so God says, Israel, remember how I freed you from slavery? Remember how I protected you? And remember how I fulfilled my promise to you? And he says, what have you done? Now notice how Israel responds. Verse 6, with what should I enter the Lord's presence? With what should I bow before the sovereign God? In other words, how does Israel gain favor with God? How do they appease this angry God? Should I enter his presence with burnt offerings, with the year-old calf? Will the Lord accept a thousand rams or ten thousand streams of olive oil? Should I give him my firstborn child as payment for my rebellion, my offspring, my own flesh and blood for my sin? And so Israel begins to think, we've made God angry, we have sinned against God. How do we appease him? By giving him sacrifice. And they enter into this pagan mindset of manipulating God. I'll give you what you want, you give me what I want. And so God addresses this and he's like, this is not what I'm looking for. And Israel continues to elevate that sacrifice in hopes that one day they'll get what they want. And instead of just giving lambs, they give tens of thousands of rams. They give rivers of oil. And even in this verse, it says that they resort to child uh, child. Uh, sacrifices, and they give their firstborn children to God in hopes that they'll get what they want. And so God addresses this type of religion, and he says, this is not what I'm looking for. And I wonder if there's a modern form of idolatry that comes into our Christianity. I wonder if there are times where when we don't like certain aspects of God, we tend to edit him out and make our own gods. And it may not be in the form of a wooden statue or a golden statue, but I wonder if it comes out in the form of an idea, a doctrine, or an editing out of an idea or a doctrine. And we get to edit and formulate our own kind of gods. I wonder if we've allowed the idea of idolatry to come into Christianity where there are times where we try to manipulate God. I'll give you A, if you give me B, instead of trusting that God has our best interest in mind. See, with the sacrificial system, that lamb represented himself, and he's trying to communicate, I love you so much, I'm giving Jesus to die for you. Like, this is the greatest promise, this is the greatest gift that I could ever give and bestow upon you. And so I'm asking you to trust me. That's the form of religion that God promotes. But I wonder if there's a time where in our insecurity, we tend to think, God, if I put more money in that offering basket, maybe you'll hear my prayers. If I spend a little bit more time reading the Bible today, maybe the day will turn out to be better. If I spend more time doing church work, maybe, God, you'll give me a prosperous life. And this type of formulated religion is the very thing where God is saying, this is not what Christianity is about. This is not what Christianity is about. So here's the question. How do you break out of that cycle? 
And how do you know what is truth? Because what God asks and what Israel gives is so similar and yet it's so different because we know the outcomes. On one hand, there should be obedience and Israel gives disobedience. So how do you know what is the truth? How do you break out of that cycle of manipulation? And how do you break out of that cycle of editing God? I think one thing that helps me is that there are personal desires that I want to achieve in my life. And I prioritize my personal desires over the desires of God. And here's what I mean. We all have personal goals, whether it's professional goals, financial goals, family goals, whatever. Uh, you might be in a place in your life where um, you're, you're wondering, God, like, when is the right person going to come into my life? Or God, when do I finally get to be financially stable? Or God, when do I finally get to buy that yacht? Or in my case, God, when do I finally get that Ferrari, right? And there, there are personal desires that each and every one of us have. And here's the challenge. We know that when we approach God, He's going to flip our desires and our worldview upside down. And the very things that we want, if we allow God into that picture, we may lose out on what we actually want. And there's an element of fear. And there's an element of insecurity. And so we try to just get whatever we can by getting by with as little as possible or as much as possible doing the things that we want to get what we want, if that makes sense. Like Christianity becomes um, this... Uh, what's that called when you try to maximize profit and you minimize expenditure? Cost-benefit analysis, is that right? What happens when we turn religion into a cost-benefit analysis? And if we lose out on more, it's like, God, I'm sorry, I can't give you that part of my life. See, one challenge is acknowledging that we each have prioritized desires and goals. The next step is this, to actually allow God to flip our world upside down. The very things that we're afraid of, the very things that we do not want to give to God, to give to Him and see what happens, to try Him out. There were several times in the Bible where God asks us, try me and see what happens. Let me flip your world upside down and see what the end result is. You see, the very difficulty of that is having a trusting relationship with Jesus and trusting that if we give God the area of our life, the idea that we have, the desire that we have, and if we allow God to have control of that, there's an element of trust that takes place. And that's why God gives us Jesus, to teach us that he loves us so much that he's given us the most valuable thing that he possesses, his own son. And so in Christian religion, rather than gaining security from God, or rather than manipulating security from God, it's basically acknowledging that that security exists. The second thing is this. The thing that gives us security is not the kind of security necessarily that God wants to give. Right? I feel like if I had a billion dollars, I'd be pretty secure. Because I could buy whatever I want, I could do whatever I want, I could travel wherever I want, and I would be set. But that may not be the same security that comes from knowing that Jesus has died for me. That may not be the same security where God is saying, I am promising you my presence through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so it takes a willingness to submit my security with God's security. 
And so one way to break out of manipulation, one way to break out of this idea of editing God is one, acknowledge the security that God gives and try out that worldview, that paradigm shift that God wants to bring about in our lives. There are a couple things that I've tried to do uh, in the recent past that have really reshaped the way that I see God. One way of breaking out of this idea of editing God is I've asked myself, is there any part of the Bible that I personally struggle with? Is there any part of the Bible that I don't like studying? And basically, I know very little about prophets. And so what I've done is, over the past year, I've gone and I've read the book of Isaiah. And I've thought to myself, maybe I'll learn something new about God through the book of Isaiah, just because in the past I've always thought, there's so much that I don't understand, I don't want to put time into it. And what I've found is there's a complete different picture of God that's really refreshed and uh, really taught me firsthand about what God is like. And over the past six months, it's just really fed my heart. And it's caused me to think, you know, there are some ideas of God that I cling on to. There's some idolatry that I cling on to in my own life. And, I'm, yeah, I need to let it go. Um, there's an example of, uh, in Isaiah, and I'll share this uh, here in closing, Isaiah chapter um, 46. Isaiah chapter 46, and reading 9 and 10. God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And so here, God gives this principle in Isaiah where he says, remember how I've acted in the past? This is how I'm going to act. Uh, like This should give you encouragement for the future. Okay. Now, if you go to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19, he says something that's quite contrary to that. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. It says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now, does that sound weird at all? So in Isaiah chapter 46, God says, remember the former things of old. And then in Isaiah chapter 43, God says, forget about the past. I'm going to do a new thing. And I've kind of, this has challenged me so much as I've been reading through Isaiah. You know, there's that story of Moses taking the bronze serpent and he makes it and Israel is supposed to look at it. And then the venom that's in there would be cleansed and they would be healed, right? But then later on, in, um, later on in the Bible, Israel begins to worship the very thing that God uses as a representation to bring healing to their lives. And so on one hand, God says, remember how I acted in the past. I am faithful. And at the same time, he says, forget about how I've worked in the past. I'm going to do something new. And I kind of asked myself the question as I was reading through Isaiah, are there times where I've built up a monument of how I've experienced God in the past and I just cling to that monument, refusing to let God change my life for the future? You know, there are many times where I thought, and here's one idea, if I give God my faithfulness, He will bless me financially. And I was this broke Bible worker for the longest time and for four and a half years, I think I was paid maybe like $500 a, a month. And that's, you take care of petrol, you feed yourself, you get clothes. If, it, like shopping was out of uh, necessity more than out of hobby. 
you know, like there are times where you have no more pants and you're like, okay, I have to go shopping now. Like that's $500 a month. And then I just thought, if I'm faithful, if I give God my good works, he will give me prosperity. And there are times where God took care of my finances. I mean, I wasn't rich or wealthy or anything like that, but I really believe this idea of like prosperity. And the more I studied the Bible, I realized, you know, I've kind of made my relationship with God about finances. And lo and behold, you know, I decided to go into ministry, right? Like that is the absolute worst professional profession to go into if you're going to try and make money, right? And I realized, you know what, this is, I have to let go of this idea of if I give God um, faithfulness and service, then he will give me finances. And I just realized there are times where God does bless, but not always. Sometimes God changes it up. And it requires this degree of trust and reaching out to God and saying, God, I actually want to know what do you want? What, do you, what are you like? And you make the changes in my life. I was talking to uh, James, and James was saying, hey, um, I'm at a time in my life where I need to look for work. And for those of you who are familiar with the new budget, anyone who's under the age of 30 and unemployed, well, you're stuffed. <laughs> you're basically stuffed. And it's so easy to say, God, like, I really need a job. And you know, James is a fairly qualified individual, and he gets a line of interviews, and one of the interviews is with a tobacco company. And the tobacco company's like, we're really interested in, in your skills. And James thinks to himself, and he's like, you know, I don't really believe in the tobacco industry. It's something that actually contradicts my beliefs. James sends me an email, and he's like, hey, Roy, um, I got this interview. went well, um, but it goes against my beliefs. I, I don't think I want to move forward and take this job. What do you think? I'm like, James, I agree with you. And so he tells his recruiter, like, this is actually something that um, it, I don't believe in this, and so I'm going to pass this by. Now, think about this. You're in a time of, Australia isn't in a time of economic recession necessarily, but it's not, there aren't millions of jobs open where you get anything that you want anytime that you want, and especially if you're in an age group where, you're, where the government is telling you to go find a job right now. Like, and we're not going to, you know, there's like a whole list of things that you have to fulfill to, to get a paycheck. Like, it, it's not a good time to turn away work. And you could say, God, I need to survive. I need to eat. I need to be able to pay my bills. I have to pay my rent. And there is this willingness to allow, James has this willingness to let his paradigm be turned upside down and say, God, you provide the job where I know that I can serve you. For me, that's powerful. And I share that right now when he doesn't have a job because it's a better testimony because you always have happy endings at the end, right? But I think it's good to say, I don't know what the future is going to hold, but God, rather than me manipulating you, you determine what I should do in my own life. That's powerful for me. As we go into the discussion time, there are a list of questions that have to do with how we deal with idolatry in Christianity. And um, I hope that in the midst of our dialogue and in our conversation that you would have a first-hand experience of knowing what truth is. And uh, yeah, I hope that we can really internalize and be blessed as we explore and as we search. So may God bless you.